This message comes from NPR sponsor Sony Pictures Classics presenting Run, Lolo, Run. The groundbreaking, high-octane cinematic sensation has returned to theaters in magnificent 4K. Don't let Lola pass you by. Get tickets now at runlolorunfilm.com. Hey, y'all. From NPR, I'm Sam Sanders. It's been a minute. So we talk to a lot of actors and singers and performers on this show. Many of them have won awards, but very few of them have achieved the award status our next guest has. He is an EGOT, one of maybe 20 or so in the world ever. An EGOT is someone who has won an Emmy, a Grammy, an Oscar, and a Tony. Today's guest has won all of those awards. You could call his career legendary. I am talking about John Legend. Please admire my pun. Okay, besides winning all the awards, John Legend is also a very busy, very hardworking man. John is a co-host on the reality singing competition show The Voice. He has an upcoming hip-hop competition show on Netflix called Rhythm and Flow. He put out a Christmas R&B album last year and has a new album on the way soon. He even has a wine line. In this chat, we talk about how John Legend gets it all done. We also discuss his extremely popular celebrity marriage to the one and only Chrissy Teigen. And of course, we cannot discuss their relationship without discussing how the two of them recently got into a Twitter fight with the president. Listeners, as a heads up, in that part of the conversation, there's some unbleeped offensive language. It may not be the best thing for kids to hear. With that, Let's get to it. John joined me from his studio in Los Angeles. I was in New York. Enjoy. Hello. Hello, Sam. Hi, Mr. Legend. How are you? How's everything? Pretty good. Also, I guess I should ask, like, what is your preferred title? I was like, do I want to call him Mr. Legend? Is he cool with that? Uh, it's fine, but you can call me John. Okay, I'll call you John. All right. Uh, it is an honor and a pleasure to be talking with you today. I, uh, I know you're very busy. You're in the midst of doing a lot of stuff today already. And, like, when I was mm-hmm. researching this interview, I said to myself, like, you have to be one of the busiest people in the biz right now. You're still making music. You are producing and starring in live musicals. You're in a variety show on IFC. There's your work on The Voice. There's Songland, this reality songwriting competition. You're extremely busy. And I don't even know if I was able to count up all the things you're doing right now. Well, you know, it sounds like I'm really busy, but I don't feel like I am. I feel rested. I feel like I'm not overworking. I'm spending a lot of time at home with my family. I'm getting a lot done, but a lot of it is because I have a, a lot of great people that work with me and for me and I don't have to day to day be in the weeds of all the work that we do okay. but I come in uh, when it's important for me to add my creative voice and and to appear in some of the productions that we put together and uh, I actually focus the most on just writing songs and recording songs okay. and performing live yeah. and, and doing what my core job is which is to uh Make music and make people feel good by the music that I make. Yeah. So which of your projects, current or upcoming, are you most excited about? Right now, timing-wise, we've got one thing that we produce that I'm very excited about, which is called Rhythm and Flow. It's a new competition show that'll be on Netflix, and it starts in October. 
Uh, it's a hip-hop reality competition show. So think all the shows you watch where all the singers are competing, but for hip-hop. And, and with hip-hop, it's different because they're not covering songs. They're creating their own raps and competing uh, for the judges and for the audiences. And uh, our judges are Cardi B, T.I., and uh, Chance the Rapper. And we've got some really great guest judges and, and producers and DJs and collaborators. Uh, people like Snoop Dogg, people like Janae Aiko, uh, and uh, it's going to be a really fun season. For me personally, as an artist, what I'm working on, I'm actually in the studio right now, and uh, we just finished a, a deluxe version of the Christmas album that we put out last year. We added four more songs, and I'm working on a new original studio uh, solo album okay. um, that will come out early next year. I'm excited for people to hear that. You know, going back to the hip-hop reality show that you're working on that launches mm -hmm. soon. Rhythm and Flow. Rhythm and Flow. There are, at this point, a lot of reality singing or dance competition shows. American Idol, The Voice, which you've been part of, other ones. Like, there's yeah. a lot. Do you wonder, worry, or struggle with trying to make the next one feel fresh? Well, I think the the content is already fresh because it's hip hop, and and we haven't had that before. I think we've seen yeah. so many variations of the singing shows, and I understand why they work. Uh, part of the formula for the singing shows is that you're singing covers, so you're singing songs that are already familiar, mm. uh, but just unfamiliar voices. So the the challenge of doing a hip hop show is that. Um, it's a lot of original material that the audience has never heard before. Mm -hmm. And so they're being judged not only on their performance and their ability to perform in front of a crowd, but also on their writing ability. And I think it really works for Netflix because it's not network television. There are, you know, uh, aren't the same kind of restrictions around what can be said. And there's a lot more edginess that is allowed on Netflix. And I think it's going to be really a, a fresh addition to the reality competition landscape yeah. uh, because no one can do it exactly like this yeah. on network television. Well, I mean, I'm just thinking now it's like you're going to want to be able to allow these performers to use profanity when needed, you know? Exactly. <laughs> and it's yeah. like and our judges, trust me, they use it too. <laughs> <laughs> when you see a thing like that, this reality where the TV landscape, uh, no one has like malicious intent, but mm -hmm. for years, reality singing doesn't have hip hop, which means it's less black and brown than it should be. Mm -hmm. And now you're mm -hmm. finally making space for that. Do you look at that and say, well, this industry, TV, all this stuff, it is systemically racist, or do you not think of it that way? Because there's all of these situations where hip-hop doesn't get as big of a platform. Black and brown voices don't either. And no one in TV is, like, saying, lock them out. But it ends up that way, right? Yeah, and, and for a long time, the network system and kind of the traditional media outlets were afraid to touch certain things, afraid to be edgy in certain areas. And some of it has an overlay of racism and, and fear of kind of marginalized people having centrality in, in these systems. But I think part of it was also just fear of whatever reaction they might get from the audience and having to be mainstream, having to appeal to as broad of an audience as possible. I think it psyched a lot of these uh, networks out and made them afraid to take risks. But now we're in a landscape where I think there are so many different outlets for um, marginalized voices that just didn't exist before. And because of that, we're being able to prove ourselves and, and mm -hmm. show that our ideas 
uh, are creatively exciting and also can sell really well. Yeah. And all of these companies want to make money. All these companies <laughs> want to find audiences yeah. that weren't there before. And, and all of these creatives who have created this great work have shown the industry that this stuff can actually sell. And so I think everybody's on the bandwagon now. And, um, you know, they're ready to create and allow these creatives to have their voices heard. Yeah. You know, I was going to get to this later on in the conversation, but now is a good moment to get there. Talking with you, like I talk with a lot of singers and musicians. They don't have the kind of business savvy that you have that I hear coming out in this Mm -hmm. conversation. And that's in large part. And some folks might not know this. Like you had a former life as like a business consultant. (laughs) Yeah, I did that for three years. So I I went to the University of Pennsylvania. I graduated in uh, 1999 and... You know, I was going to class with all these other kids that were interviewing with, you know, the people that come and recruit at our campus, which are a lot of management consulting firms and, and investment banks and, you know, um, big Wall Street firms. And um, so I was curious. Uh, a lot of my friends were doing these interviews and I didn't study business in, in undergrad. I majored in English. I was just curious and I went to a couple events and uh, one of the events had a few alumni that I was f- friends with Mm -hmm. and uh it was put on by this company called boston consulting group bcg one of the biggest in the biz bcg absolutely Uh, so i sat with a recent alumna of the school and she was telling me all about her work at bcg and it sounded interesting and i I decided to apply i applied there and i applied to mckinsey i got interviews uh with both of them and i got um hired with with bcg and uh, i got this offer and it was at the time, a lot of money for me. It was $50,000 a year. That's good for a first <laughs> job. I, I remember, you know, being like thrilled, first of all, because that was pretty high for a first job. And that was more than my dad ever made as a factory worker wow. in Ohio. Wow. So it was kind of like, how could I turn this down? Yeah. And so I knew that I wanted to make music for a living, but I knew also I had school loans to pay off and I had to pay my rent. And, yeah. And all these other things, and I didn't have any kind of yeah. nest egg for my parents, so I was like, "I'm gonna take this real corporate job." Yeah. But um, during the meantime, you know, I was in the studio at night. I would play local gigs around New York and Philadelphia, and I was meeting different creatives, people like Kanye, uh, who I met in 2001. Yeah. He was the cousin of my roommate at the time, and um, really, we were both uh, recently moved to New York, and. Uh, he was trying to make it as a producer and eventually as a rapper, and I was trying to make it as a singer-songwriter. And we started working together uh, in late 2001, early 2002. Really? And um, But you were active before that, right? Because if I recall correctly, yeah. I first heard about you because you did the piano work for Lauryn Hill's Everything is Everything, yes. right? Yeah, so that was my first major recording that I appeared on. It's a pretty big first major recording. Yeah, I was still in college at the time, and that was my claim to fame in school. How'd they find you? <laughs> it was a, um, well, while I was in college, and even before I went to college, I was a, a choir director. Uh, so oh. in in uh, high school, I was doing that at my home church in Ohio. Mm-hmm. And then once I moved to Pennsylvania, I started driving up every weekend to this church in Scranton, Pennsylvania, which I, I connected with due to a, a family friend from Ohio. And uh, I started um, directing the choir there and playing the piano. And one of the choir members was uh, an artist and singer-songwriter named Tara, Tara Michelle. Mm-hmm. And we became friends. And mm-hmm. she happened to have grown up with Lauren Hill. Wow. 
And Lauren invited her to come out to uh, the studio in Jersey where she was recording wow. in this education album. And one time I, I was, uh, I drove Tara to the studio and, uh, you know, obviously she wanted me to drive her out there, but she also wanted me to meet Lauren and, mm-hmm. and possibly, you know, get a chance to show her what I could do. And during one of the breaks when they were writing Everything is Everything, Tara said, John, why don't you play a couple songs for Lauren? What? I wanted to, I wanted to see you sing and play. And uh, so I, I sang one original song for her and I sang a Stevie Wonder song. Which one? Love's in Need. Oh, yeah. <laughs> yeah. So I, I sang that and played it for her, and she was like, "Why don't you play on this song we're working on right what? now?" What? And I played on "Everything Is Everything," and I didn't That's know if amazing. that was going to make the album. I didn't know anything, but uh, a few months later, I got a call from Columbia Records uh, asking how to spell my name for the credits, and so <laughs> that's when I knew. That's when I knew I was on the album, and I got a little five hundred dollar check, and uh, I was on "Everything Is Everything," which. Uh, was part of you know what was the most important album of that year and and one of the most important albums in hip hop history really. You're doing something right. I mean, like I'm hanging out with the wrong black people because you out here <laughs> rooming <laughs> with Kanye's cousin, casually yeah. ending up in Lauryn Hill studio. Well, you know they say uh, luck is when opportunity meets preparation, and and mm. I always tell people that because it, it's a combination of being in the right place at the right time, but also being ready. When that mm. opportunity comes, there you and go. so I was trying to you make myself ready. ready. I've been, you know, learning to play the piano since I was four years old. I've been singing and playing uh, in church and in school and all these other places since I was a kid. And yeah. so by the time I was in that room with Lauren Hill, I was ready for her to hear me. By the time I was uh, in that room with Kanye, I was ready for him to hear me. Like yeah. I said, luck is opportunity meeting preparation. All right, time for a break. We're talking with John Legend. After the break, we talk about that time President Trump got in a fight with him and his wife on Twitter. It sparked a hashtag that may not be the best thing for kids to hear. And there will not be bleeps around some of that discussion, okay? All right, we'll be right back. Support for this podcast is brought to you by Discover Card. You check things all the time, like your email or social media. But Discover asks, what about checking something as important as your credit score? Well, Discover makes it quick and easy with their credit scorecard, which is free for everyone, even if you're not a customer. See your FICO credit score and other important credit information. And once you know your score, you should check to see if your current credit card is the best fit for you. Learn more at discover.com slash credit scorecard. Limitations apply. Hey, it's Antonia Cerejido, producer with NPR's Latino USA. And I want to tell you about one of our most popular segments. We call it The Breakdown. In each episode, we explore a Latinx cultural phenomenon, like our most recent about the Peruvian diva Ima Sumac, or our episode on Dora the Explorer. Check it out. It's Latino USA from NPR. Flash forward. You're doing this music, but you end up as a business consultant after college at Penn. Three years of consulting, you get into the biz, like, officially, full-time. But I'm wondering, what is the biggest lesson you took from your time as a business consultant that helps you in your career now? Because I'm guessing that you have approached your entire career differently than 
most performers because you have this training and this background that can probably allow you to walk into a meeting with execs and just feel confident in a way that they can't, other folks can't. Yeah, I think think the biggest thing I got was a certain comfort level that I could speak to executives, that I could hire the right people, and that I just had a kind of a... An elevated standard of the type of people I wanted to work with as well. Mm. Um, mm. And I think the biggest thing I got from working at BCG was just a, kind of an understanding of the standards that I was looking for when it came to the professionals that I surrounded myself with. Mm. But I don't think I think about my music as a, as a consultant. Okay. I really just go in and try to create something beautiful and special and, and something that inspires me and hopefully will inspire other people. And I, I'm intentional about not thinking about marketing that much when I'm in the studio just creating. I really try to divorce the marketing and the and the over analysis from that. Yeah. I want to pivot now and mm-hmm. talk about politics for a bit because sure. on top of your work, uh, TV, the productions, the music, you um, you've become a fairly active voice in politics, particularly online. Mm-hmm. You have sparred openly on Twitter with the likes of Kanye West and Donald Trump. Mm-hmm. When that kind of stuff happens, is that more of a thing that you want to do or more of a thing that you feel that you have to do? I think it's a combination. I, I think I've always thought of myself as a very political person. I've always read, even as a child, when I would go to the library, I would I would choose to read about Dr. King. I would choose to read about the struggle. I would choose to read about people who fought for justice. And, and that's always been inspiring to me. I've always thought about um, my role as an artist and as someone with influence as something that is a, a special gift that mm. gives me the opportunity to uh, speak out about these things. And I wrote uh, an essay when I was 15 years old. It was a McDonald's essay competition for Black History Month. It was called huh. Future Black History Makers. <laughs> and <laughs> it, it basically the prompt was, how will you make black history? Um. And I said I was going to do it by becoming a famous artist and using my success to fight for justice. Okay. And um, I literally said that when I was 15, and, and I'm living that All 25 right. years later. Yeah. You know, when I think about getting involved in politics, I kind of want to mm-hmm. ask you a little bit about, like, the best way to get at it. I mean, like, we mm-hmm. we see these Twitter spats happen. You know, there was mm-hmm. an interlude with you and Kanye West when he came out in support of Donald Trump. There was an incident with you and your wife Chrissy and, and, and Trump a few weeks ago where the hashtag pussy-ass bitch was trending. Yes. And, like, do you ever say... Yes, I want to be involved in politics, but putting my effort towards politics on Twitter will never go anywhere. Because, like, even you said after the whole Kanye West back and forth that, like, that maybe didn't move the needle that much. And, like, seeing that weird hashtag trend with Trump, does that move the needle? Like, does sometimes, sometimes for you, does the political voice on Twitter seem futile because it always ends up as just a fight that's just crazy and, and weird. Well, I think those spats probably didn't advance anything one way or the other. I think they embarrassed the president and I, I think he definitely took a L in the, in the situation <laughs> kind of uh, in the in the Twitter sphere and in the eyes of public opinion. And I think it, it was probably entertaining for a lot of people and it just further showed what a crappy human being he is. On, on every level but he shows that every day 
But what it actually did, um, it highlighted the town hall, which was what got him <laughs> so riled up in the first place that we didn't praise him uh, specifically in the town hall. The town hall was about criminal justice reform. This was the town hall that you did? Yes, it was the town hall that I did uh, with Lester Holt, uh, highlighting the work that we do at my organization, Free America. And the real concrete work that we do uh, at Free America is connecting with organizers in state and local areas where a lot of these laws need to be changed. And we're actually mobilizing people, getting people out to vote. And the Twitter stuff got a lot of attention. And I think it did get positive attention for Free America and for the cause that we're fighting for. But that isn't core to what we do, uh, even though it gets a lot of eyeballs. You know, we probably got to catch up listeners who didn't follow the whole thing. So y'all had had the town hall. President Trump yeah. was mad because you didn't give him a shout out. Um, yeah. And then we didn't, was by the way, we didn't say anything bad about him. We just, just didn't, didn't praise him. Didn't actively praise him. Just think how needy you have to be to watch MSNBC on a Sunday night. And so he was mad that. We didn't talk about him and we didn't actively praise him. And then he, what, he thinks he called Chrissy something. What did he call her? He called her a filthy mouthed wife. Um, uh, so he called me a boring singer, John Legend, and his filthy mouthed wife didn't praise him. By the way, my filthy mouthed wife, she had nothing to do with the show. He just wanted to to mention her because I think she's been a foil to him in the past. He's blocked huh. her in the past. And huh. I think he's always threatened by women that have their own voice and uh, and aren't submissive to him. Yeah. And then from there, Chrissy makes, and I'm not going to say the word again, PSB. Yes. She yes. makes that trend. Yes, because she basically called him out for, because he added me, you know, uh, people that do Twitter a lot, you understand what adding means, which basically you mention their Twitter handle so that they see it mm-hmm. in their in their mentions. He added me, he had, added Van Jones, he added, you know, several other people. And the only person he did not actually at in that was filthy mouth wife. <laughs> oh, so she was like, you're so, going to call me out, call me out. Yeah, she was basically like, why didn't you at me? And, and you're a <laughs> uh, that's how that got trending do you ever have days where you're just like uh, maybe no more Twitter maybe just like the work on the ground do you ever get tired of it that space Um, I I often will go through days where I don't look at my mentions uh, particularly when I know there's some story that brought me to the attention of the MAGAs out there um, when they kind of mobilize around uh, hating you uh, your Twitter mentions are just an utter mess. Mm. And so there's some days where I just won't look at it, and it's fine. Chrissy, she seems extremely comfortable in that medium, and she makes it work mm-hmm. for herself very well. She's like just like mm-hmm. really good at Twitter. Yeah, um, she's very she's very natural at it, Yeah, she always has been. Yeah. Does she get tired of it? She probably gets worse comments as a woman than you Oh, do. yeah, she definitely gets worse comments as a woman, and I, I think she's gotten more savvy at it over the years. She understands... You know, if she wants to deal with those kinds of responses, she knows when they'll come and and what kind of things she could say that would either uh, uh, make those responses more likely or make them less likely. And so I think she's able to kind of decide for herself how much she wants to stir things up and how much she wants to just leave it alone. She doesn't let it get to her too much. Okay. One more break. When we come back, John Legend tells me what he's listening to right now. We also share our gripes about the current state of the music industry. BRB. This message comes from Apple Pay. Everyone knows that credit card numbers can be stolen. But you know what's harder to steal? Your face. 
With Apple Pay, your purchases are authenticated by you thanks to Face ID, making your smile your signature. Just double-click, smile, and tap. With each tap, your card number and your purchases stay secured. Pay the Apple way with your compatible device anywhere contactless payment is accepted. Support for this podcast and the following message come from Crown, publisher of The Demon of Unrest, a saga of hubris, heartbreak, and heroism at the dawn of the Civil War by Eric Larson. The Demon of Unrest is available wherever books and audiobooks are sold. All right, Professor McConaughey, are you ready for an Ask Me Another Challenge? All right, all right, all right. Hey, everyone, it's Ophira Eisenberg. In this episode, we talk with actor Matthew McConaughey. Listen to NPR's Ask Me Another, the answer to life's funnier questions. I was a sophomore in college Mm -hmm. when Get Lifted came out. Yeah. And let me tell you, me and everybody I know played that album out. And there are at least three or four. Yeah, there's at least three or four little college talent shows where me yes. and my friends were playing ordinary people yes. over and over and over it's again. It's still like, a big hit at the talent shows and and uh so high works. actually. Uh, I was talking to a writer that I was working with on my on my next album and she was telling me uh how much friends of hers that sang at talent shows would sing so high and now all of me of course gets that kind of coverage too. I'm always honored when people want to sing my songs at these talent shows uh, because as a songwriter, that's that's part of what we want is yeah. making a song that other people are inspired by and want to yeah. sing. And like makes it last, you know, but but yeah. thinking back to that first album mm-hmm. and, and you're about to put an album into the world soon, you know, 2019, mm-hmm. 2020, is it easier or harder now to put stuff out in the world? The entire industry has changed. The landscape has yeah. changed. The way we get people's music has changed do you like putting music out now more than you did back then well it's different everything's different so i don't know if one's better than the other obviously we sold more units back then everyone because people still bought hard copies of albums they went to target they went to best buy they went to these places i had a hard copy of your album mr legend a hard copy yeah i mean you didn't have a choice really at the time (laughs) true uh, unless you were going on napster which was still not a huge thing at the time and i would never tell uh, you if i did that (laughs) yeah but that was really the only album of mine that was purely in that cd era Mm. we started getting into the piracy era not long after that and then into the legal streaming era uh, you know, more recently. But either way, it's never been the same when it comes to actually buying physical copies of music. Mm. Um, I don't even buy physical copies of albums anymore. Are you saddened by this reality? I'm not really saddened by it because I love the fact that I can stream anything I want to listen to. I love as a consumer of music that the whole world is at my fingertips when I'm in my car, when I'm at the gym, like it's all there. And I can listen to anything I want. And I think that's great for music. I think it's great for listeners. Um, I think more music gets listened to because of that. But uh, I think the downside is, you know, we still have to make sure everyone in the industry gets compensated well. Mm -hmm. And writers can still survive and studio musicians can still survive. And all these other people that kind of are part of the uh, musical ecosystem can still make a living off of the streaming revenue. Yeah. Do you think that the rise of streaming and the ways that we've changed how we listen to music, has it forced you to change your songwriting? Like, there's there's little things that we don't even notice. Like, because Spotify's algorithms 
look at whether or not people play the entire song all the way through. We now have artists making pop songs that are incredibly shorter than they were 10 years ago. Things like that. Or like the album is kind of slowly dying and now it's just single here, song there. Has the way the industry has just changed, has it affected the way you make a song? It doesn't. It hasn't changed my songwriting at all, like okay. not even a little bit. Okay. I think the only thing it really affects is probably how we think about releases. So mm. sometimes we'll just put a song out and not connect it to an album, which is, I think, okay in this era, but we wouldn't have thought of doing that before. But I still like to do albums. I still like to think of them as bodies of work with a theme, with you know, with connective tissue between the songs. And I still listen to the artists I love uh, I listen to their albums. Now, I am different from probably a teenager right now yeah. who may just go to a Spotify curated list and or curate their own list and, and listen to it that way. But I still think uh, for their favorite artists, they're probably still going to listen to the whole body of work and, and let it play. But when I do put an album out, which hopefully will be early next year, mm-hmm. I'm going to be thinking just like I did before about great yeah. songs and great flow between the songs mm-hmm. and making sure it feels like a cohesive unit. Yeah. What is the last album that you enjoyed in in the current music landscape? Oh, I love um, uh, James Blake's latest album. I listen to a lot. Okay. I like Rhapsody's new album quite a lot. Mm-hmm. And uh, Chance's album uh, I really like as well, Yeah, uh, which I'm a part of. <laughs> you are. You're like the Rick first Ross's, song on there. Yeah, Rick Ross's album I'm, I'm a part of as well. And I've listened to that front to back quite a bit too. How do you feel about the state of hip-hop and R&B right now? Uh, you said in... Other interviews recently that you're that it the state of affairs there could be better. Yeah, you know I think hip hop's doing just fine. R and B. Wait, explain. So there's just fewer, kind of a more narrow outlet for R and B. Whereas I think when I first started out, I think R and B and hip hop were more on closer to equal footing. Uh, and w- when I was growing up in the 90s, particularly, that was definitely the case. Now I feel like w- in the competition for kind of black music ears, hip hop mm-hmm. is more dominant. And so it kind of limits the opportunities for R&B to be as prominent and dominant in the zeitgeist. I can hear it. Yeah. I mean, I can hear yeah. it. I mean, like when you think back to the like classic R&B that Stevie Wonder was making like in the 70s. Mm-hmm. It mm-hmm. was so musically lush, and like he was using chords that you just don't hear anymore. Like, yeah, like they would like they would just go more places musically, and like, yeah, when R and B becomes more hip hop, there there there's a there's less space for all of that stuff, and you end up hearing songs with fewer chords, fewer yeah, but and, and movement. But they, it's interesting know? because I feel like there's been kind of a resurgence of what we used to call neo soul with people like her and. And uh, other artists that I think are in that vein, and I think, but I you think, never hear them on top forty radio, right? That's correct. I, I I think it's interesting because like Khalid makes I think real R and B music, and but he does it in a way that's pretty accessible to pop ears. Yeah, and so he's he's broken through. Um, I think Lizzo makes kind of a hybrid of, of pop, hip hop, and R and B. Things that are more kind of purely R&B, like a, a Her or something like that, yeah. you don't hear on uh, on pop radio. And and you don't really hear it on hip-hop radio that oh, much yeah. either. Yeah. And and so it just uh, I think it limits uh, opportunities a little bit for yeah. R&B artists. It kind of bums me out. Like, like my barometer for it is like I want the industry to get back to the place where an artist like Anita Baker could just mm-hmm. exist. 
She's yeah. not dancing. She's not fancy. Yeah. It's not yeah. big, lush costumes. She just could sing, and the songs were good. And that could sell millions of albums. Yeah. Like, what would Anita Baker I, do today? I don't know, but I also feel like you ne- you just never know until that next artist comes around that captures everyone's imagination. Maybe someone can come along and do something like that again, um, and you never know. And it's hard because I'm I'm at a phase in my life where most artists tend to decline anyway. I'm you know 15 years into my career, and uh, you know I'm over 40, so the expectation is that um, you know my biggest hits are probably behind me anyway. Do you think and that's that kind of the, uh, you know, I, I assume that that's the natural progression of things. That doesn't mean I don't go out and try to make the best music I can. And, uh, you know, I still believe that I can make music that's relevant and important. But I do realize, you know, if if things go according to the way they've tended to go in the past, that eventually uh, new artists come along that young listeners are more excited about and they'll get more radio play, they'll get more, you know, uh, pop wow. coverage or whatever. John. And that's just how things work. And, and I'm fine with that. It's okay. It's um, real. I don't ever hear musicians say that in interviews. Well, I think no one wants to kind of uh, cop to that, but that's <laughs> just how things, that's how things have always worked. Um, and it's fine, but I'm going to still go out there and make music that's uh, urgent and relevant and uh, and straight from my heart and uh Hopefully people will love it. Wow. That is extremely candid of you because, you know, whenever I hear artist interviews or talk to artists, it doesn't matter how long they've been in the game or how relevant they are or not. They're always like, this is the newest, hottest thing and everyone's going to love it. And they're just like, they're, they they have to sell in a way. And like hearing you well, be this I, the honest. The thing is, I, I believe that about my music too. But um, <laughs> I also know that maybe it won't. <laughs> and you're okay with that. <laughs> but I But I believe that I'm making music that is going to be special and, and it's going to be competitive. It's going to be relevant. And I'm excited for people to hear what we're working on. But I also know that if I were 22 and putting it out and fresh on the scene, that same music would probably do better. Mm. Do you get mad at that? No. It's, just, it's part of life. You're very zen. <laughs> John Legend, this was an honor and a treat Sophomore year of college, Sam Sanders is just jumping up and down screaming for joy. (laughs) And I also forgot to thank you because you're one of those artists who, on top of having an incredible debut, the sophomore album, once again, was even better. That... That I loved once again. I preferred once again to get listed, Listen. and I still, I still do. <laughs> it was on that Burt Bacharach tip, and like songs yeah. like Maxine. I'm just like, oh, this yes. is this is canon. This is classic. Yeah, Maxine is still one of my favorite songs I've written. Again, is one of my favorite songs I've written. Yeah, that's on on once again. Uh, Show me is one of my favorite songs I've written. Show me has layers. Yeah, yeah. so many of the songs on once again are, are some of my favorites. I'm going to keep trying to top them. So uh, hopefully we'll be saying that about my next album, too. I happen to notice a girl in the light shade of blue. Thanks again to John Legend. You are hearing his song, Maxine, one of my favorite songs of his, off his second album, Once Again, which I first heard way back in college, back in the day in San Antonio, Texas, at the University of the Incarnate Word. Ashley Abrams, dear friend, if you are listening, do you remember dancing around to John Legend and Earth, Wind & Fire in the student government office way back in the day? Wasn't it fun? All right, listeners, stay tuned for a new album from John Legend very soon. In the meantime, though, I want to hear from you. 
drop us a line at samsanders at npr.org. samsanders at npr.org. You can tell us anything. Give us story ideas, share the best parts of your week, send dog photos, whatever. Okay, we're back in your feeds Friday. Till then, thank you for listening. We're going to go out with a bit more of John Legend's Maxine. Talk soon. This message comes from NPR sponsor, Discover. Get the service you deserve. With 24-7 U.S.-based live customer service from Discover, everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime, day or night. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. This message comes from NPR sponsor, FX, presenting Clipped, the scandalous story of the 2014 Clippers owner's racist remarks captured on tape and heard around the world. The series charts the tape's impact on a dysfunctional basketball organization striving to win against their reputation as the most cursed team in the league. Starring Lawrence Fishburne, Jackie Weaver, Cleopatra Coleman, and Ed O'Neill. FX is clipped, now streaming only on Hulu. Last year, over 20,000 people joined the Body Electric study to change their sedentary, screen-filled lives. And guess what? We saw amazing effects. Now you can try NPR's Body Electric Challenge yourself. Listen to updated and new episodes wherever you get your podcasts.